we'll move right into our scripture reading, which is Psalm 33. Reading from the ESV. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. As his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Well, hey, thanks, Emily. Uh, good to be with you this morning. My name is Nate, serves as a pastor here. Um, I don't know about you, but this time of year particularly on this day, uh, it's leaning in to another year. And uh, last week, as I was preparing for this, um, to be honest, there were moments in which there was some fretting, in which there was some anxiety. There's also a lot of hopes thinking about this year, what could happen. And this morning, what I want to do is this, is I want to suggest this, I want us to learn how to hope. Um, learning how to hope is not easy. Uh, consider it this way. Learning to hope is something that actually is very practical. It hits the everyday moments of our lives. Consider for a moment this. When you open up your social media platform and you yet again see a daily barrage of partisan rhetoric, how do you respond? Or how about this? It's, perhaps it's the moment where you receive another wedding invitation, you're really excited for the couple, but then you're reminded that you're not there yet. Or sometimes it might be this, you, you get another IEP behavioral report from school, from your kid that just came home. Or it's, it's the moments where you're waiting to hear about the next oncology report. Or even it's this, it, it's, the, it's the moments when you're emotionally and physically exhausted by the addition of a seven pound, eight ounce image bearer. How do you respond to that? 
Or for some of us, it's, it's this. It's, it's moments in life in which you are on the precipice of a new season. Uh, maybe you're graduating. Maybe you're looking for a new job. Maybe you're in a new city. And, and the next step is not quite clear. Uh, if we're honest, some of us, when those circumstances arise, we respond this way. We work harder. You know, for some of us, it might be we, uh, we read the next parenting book, we send out a flurry of new resumes, we join a dating app. For others of us, if we're honest, in those circumstances, we escape. Uh, it might be we uh, binge a new season of whatever on Netflix. It might be escaping into our phones and social media. Uh, it might be a few more chocolates or perhaps a few drinks. And think for a moment with me for a moment. These, these responses are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's just that each of these responses are missing something. Psalm 33 is an invitation. It's an invitation to locate those everyday moments, those circumstances, and to find our hope in God. And, and consider this for a moment. Psalm 33 is a remedy. It's a remedy for those of us who are self-confident, for those of us who are weary, for those of us who are fretting, for those of us who are anxious to locate the very moments of our present lives and situations and context in a hope that Psalm 33 says will not disappoint. So four things today we're going to see in Psalm 33. Firstly, the disposition of hope. Secondly, the beginning of hope. Thirdly, the logic of hope. And then fourthly, practicing hope. So let me pray, and we'll get in. So, Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, the, the disposition of hope, what does it look like? Like, what does it smell like? What is it, what's a portrait of someone who, who hopes, as Psalm 33 is, is calling us to? It, it's actually found at the very end in verses 20 through 22. Look, look at it with me. The psalmist writes this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Notice, notice a couple things. Notice how the psalmist is waiting. Uh, the outcome has not yet arrived. The circumstances have not yet changed. And yet, the psalmist is waiting. But also notice the disposition of the heart. Uh, in verse 21, it says, <clears throat> our heart is glad in him. There's, 
there's a gladness. Isn't that remarkable? But, but all of this is because of who's with the psalmist. Uh, all of this is because of the character of this God. This God is described as a protector. Uh, this God is prescribed as a helper. This God is described as one who has steadfast love. Think for a moment with me. Consider the moments, the circumstances of your lives right now, when you're caught up in anxiety and dysfunction or whatever might be happening in your day, whatever is uncertain, Psalm 33 is calling us to orient our life and our circumstances to have not our hope in the circumstances, but rather in the hope in this God. Uh, Eugene Peterson is so helpful here. He writes about this language of hope, and this is what he says. It's this willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans that we demand that God put into effect, telling him both how and when to do it. It means going about our assigned task, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. This is so helpful. Psalm 33, <clears throat> the end of it, this disposition of hope, I'll just, I'll just frame it this way. It's a joyful, expectant trust in God. So the question is, if that's the disposition of hope, if that's how we are to hope, how do we get there? <clears throat> and that's the rest. So let's move on to the beginning of hope because it starts in verse 1. Look, look, look with me what it says. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Notice how the beginning of hope begins with a command to worship. Isn't that interesting? Uh, <clears throat> I read this not too long ago, that approximately 50% of patients who are prescribed medication do not realize their full benefits because they do not take them as prescribed. 50%. Can I suggest that one of our first problems in missing out on this joyful, expectant trust in God is because we fail to begin where Psalm 33 begins, with worship. The psalmist begins, shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. And here's where we have a problem, and I want to pause here, because oftentimes we, we protest and we say this, if I were to shout for joy to the Lord, I would be a hypocrite because I don't feel like it. Think about that. In those circumstances, right, in the midst of your chaotic life, if you were to shout for joy to the Lord, you would pause and say, wait, wait, I'm just being a phony. But the psalm suggests this. It doesn't matter how you feel. The command is still there. Again, Peterson writes, this is, this is so helpful. He, he says this, 
we think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Oh my word, is that not what we need in this generation? Did you catch that? That we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling from God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. When, when it says praise befits the righteous, it's just saying this. You and I, we were created for it. We were created for worship. Like a fish out of water, so we are out of sorts, apart from a life of worship. What does that mean? Let me just get real concrete for a moment here. As we sort of lean into 2023, let me ask you this. How central for you in your life is just the act of corporate worship on Sunday mornings. Do you realize that, you know, we, we, we gather here on Sundays and there's, right, we have this rhythm, there's a couple songs up front, there's a few on the back end. Did you know that that's not merely for nothing? It's not merely just to, like, have an opening and then to finally get to the message and then finally have a, something to end with. But no, that's an actual way of enacting our hope. It's actually a means of orienting your life and my life where actually we can have it found, where it won't disappoint. And I'll say this, for, for some of you, if this is your first Sunday here, maybe it's been a while since you've been in church, can I challenge you this year to regular Sunday worship? For others of you, uh, 2022, uh, maybe it was sporadic. Maybe you were in like maybe 20 times. Can I challenge you to up your game? And this isn't legalism, okay? This is rather the prescription that Psalm 33 is calling you to. To move from fretting and anxiety to a life learning to hope. For others of you, what does your week look like between Sunday and Sunday? What does it mean for you actually on a daily basis to grow? Perhaps it's beginning by opening your day with a time of daily reading or prayer. Perhaps it's grabbing some roommates and having, in the middle of the week, a time of getting together and opening a psalm and just talking about the week. Maybe it's doing it as a family or as a couple. Again, none of this is legalistic, but rather it's saying, here's, here's the medicine that God's prescribing. That this disposition of hope, it begins with worship. It begins with, check this, getting our eyes off of ourselves and in one measure off of our circumstances and gain our eyes fixed on this God 
who we are called to hope in. That's the beginning. But there's also the logic of hope. Verses 6 to 19 reveal a God that is more powerful and more loving than you and I would ever imagine. Uh, Verses 4 to 9 show this connection between God's work in this world and what is carried out by his word. Look at verses 4, 6, and 9 with me for a moment. In verse 4, it says this, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. In verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And then verse 9 says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. You know, there's, there's plenty of creation accounts out there. But none of them are like this. Other creation accounts are birthed out of a great battle, a great fight between two opposing forces. But Psalm 33 is echoing back to Genesis 1. And it's there where the world is not made out of a great battle. But it is a God who simply speaks and says, let there be. And there was. There's no conflict. It's simply happens. And the psalmist wants us to understand the power of God that comes from his word. It's not this arduous task. It simply happens. One example of this in verse 6, it says it references all their hosts. It's referring to the stars. Consider for a moment, do you know that our closest star to our galaxy and I'll probably murder this name, it's Proxima Centauri. It's 4.2 light years away. The Voyager 1 spacecraft right now, if it were to go there at its speed, it would take 73,000 years to arrive. And yet the scriptures say, God spoke, and it was. And it's why the next verse says, let all the earth fear the Lord, stand in awe of him. The logic of hoping in this God in the midst of your circumstances is simply this, that he's powerful. But it goes on to describe his power in verses 10 and 11. Look at those for a moment. The Lord, it says, says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Notice how in this passage there are two types of counsel. One is the counsel of the nations, and the other is God's. And notice what it says the Lord does to the nation's plans. It says he brings them to nothing and frustrates, while in contrast his plans Stand forever, the plans of his heart for all generations. And here's what that means. Either the Lord makes the, plan, the, the nation's plans not come to fruition, or if they do, it only serves his purposes. One of the most poignant examples of this in Scripture is the life of Joseph. Some of you know this story. 
Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers who are jealous. He's falsely accused in his new home of sexual assault. And he's put in prison. And then while in prison, he helps an individual by interpreting a dream. And he tells the individual, hey, will you, when you get out, will you tell this, you know, will you, will you tell Pharaoh that I'm here and that I shouldn't be here? And he's forgotten for another two years. And then he's brought before Pharaoh because he, because he has a dream. And he accurately deciphers it with God's help. For seven years, there's going to be a bountiful harvest. And then for seven years, there's going to be a famine. And Pharaoh now puts Joseph in charge. And later on in the story, the brothers who sold him into slavery have to come to him for food. And the most incredible line, I think, in the whole book of Genesis is Genesis 50, 20, because it's where Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that the way that, that, may, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What is Joseph saying? He's saying, others meant evil for me, but God used those circumstances for good. Joseph is simply an example of Psalm 33, 10 to 11. A God whose plans stand firm for all generations. But there's one more thing in this passage that's remarkable, and that's his love. Look at verse 15. It says this, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. I think that's, I'm sorry, that's verse 18, but that's what I meant to, verse 18. Um, this section comes right after the previous section, which talks about the Lord looking down and seeing. And verse, 15, verse 18 is speaking to someone who pays particular attention to something. And so think for a moment, the last time you're with some friends, or your kids went to a pool, and there it is, everybody's playing, right? Everybody's there. But if you're a parent, where do your, kid, where, where do your eyes go? They go to your kids. That's where they go. That's who you have a particular eye out to. And Keller puts it this way. <clears throat> he says, if you love someone you are quick-eyed with them. You watch intently for the merest facial expression or gesture or tone of voice that hints at a need so that you can meet it. Wonderfully, God loves us like that. His all-seeing eyes alert to both what threatens us and what nurtures us. Do you see the span? The, 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 the logic of hope in Psalm 33 reveals a God that's more powerful and more loving than we could imagine. 
Lastly, how do we practice it? How do we practice this hope? I'll give you two things. Um, the first is we've got to reject false hopes. In verses 16 and 17, notice what the psalmist says. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Now, I doubt very much any of us here have a war horse or an army. If you do, come talk to me afterwards. I'd like to hang out with you a little bit more. Um, But suffice to say, the psalmist is simply sharing a metaphor, a picture of what it means to have confidence in your own strength. Having confidence in, one, in your own ability to accomplish one's end. And the psalmist just simply says, you cannot deliver. It is a false hope. Uh, let me put it this way. For many of us, if we're honest, our war horse or our army is simply our self-sufficiency. It's our own intellect. Maybe it's our beauty, or our status, or it's our wealth, our accomplishments, or our social connections. This is what we think has gotten us where we are, and we think that's what's going to deliver us in the next situation. But this is a false hope. And the reason we fret and are anxious is because we have an inflated view of ourself and a deflated view of God. And Psalm 33 is grounding us to turn from false hopes that cannot deliver and listen, dare to be a creature and be dependent. Listen, it doesn't mean that there aren't things you must do in situations. You should study for your exams, okay? You should make preparations for a move you're moving, and so on. But there are a lot of things that you are not under control of. And it means you abdicate. You rely. You depend. But secondly, the other false hope is viewing God as a means to an end. Uh, Listen, if we're honest, oftentimes our hope in God is laced with conditions. I will put my hope in you if you give me a spouse, if you give me the promotion, if you grow the church, if you give me, and just fill in the blank. But in verses 20 to 21, notice that the end of their hope is not a certain outcome, but their hope is that their heart is glad in Him. God is not a means to an end. God is the end. 
It means in those circumstances, learning not to say if, but rather even if. Even if you don't come through as I want you to come through, my heart will still be glad in you. Let's be honest for a moment. For each one of us, our hearts are prone toward those false hopes. Our hearts are prone toward self-sufficiency. Our hearts are prone to have God as a means to an end and not the end. And Psalm 33 is wanting us to turn and to learn to hope in something that will not disappoint. So let me remind you of one final thing. One of the things that is writ large in Psalm 33, in verse 5 and 18 and 22, it's almost like something that just kind of holds your hand throughout it, is it mentions that God is a God of steadfast love. Paul Miller talks about this, this word steadfast love, and he says it combines love and commitment. And he puts it this way, it is God saying, my love for you is not based on you. It is rather a setting of the will to love, regardless of how you respond to me and even how I feel. And Paul Miller, he's, he's just kind of doing a broad scope, looking back, for example, in the Old Testament at how often in which, in one moment, the people of God are singing about how great God is for delivering them from Egypt, and in the very next moment, they're wandering from him and complaining to him. Yet his love is still there. It doesn't leave them. Peterson puts it this way, God is steadfastly with them in mercy and judgment, insistently gracious. And that steadfast love is a melodic line in the scriptures that reaches its apex in the person and work of Jesus. The steadfast love, right, where Jesus goes to the cross for our judgment so we might receive mercy. This is his love, his commitment. He gives himself. And that means, and this is oftentimes where we have the disconnect, that you cannot divorce that love from your present circumstances. It is not as, it's not as if God says, okay, I did that for you, now you figure out the rest. But Psalm 33 is inviting us to find hope right now in the present moment in a God who is of steadfast love in your present circumstances. Realizing that he is with you and that he is for you. If he's gone that far, is it not, is it not suffice to say he's with you and he's for you? You know, a couple years ago, Alicia Keys in one of her lyrics said this, if you could love somebody like me, 
you must be messed up too. And she was saying something that so many of us feel. If you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And if you do know me and you do love me, you must be messed up. But wonderfully in the gospel, God is perfect and he is good and he is gracious. And Psalm 33 repeats that kind of love over and over and over again. So brothers and sisters, are you self-confident? Are you weary? Are you fretting? Are you anxious? Psalm 33 is a remedy. It's inviting us to come home, to locate our lives and our situations in the only hope that will not disappoint. Let's pray. Father, our soul waits for you. You are our help and our shield. May our hearts be glad in you. May we trust in your name, your character. And as we do, not because we're righteous, but because you're righteous and good, would you let your steadfast love be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen.